All right. We are uh, um, looking at something today, and, and I want to say this. We're, we're going to start a, a series next week, not a long series, from uh, Haggai, the Old Testament book. It just something I feel like has some great messages for us, some great things for us to learn. And uh, today also, we're going to have communion. So I'm going to uh, talk about something. I've talked about this before. I understand that. But I feel like this is one of those things that we need to occasionally remind ourselves of, review, go over, think through what the implications are. And uh, so we're going to be talking from Genesis 15, verses 7 to 18, talking about the covenant. And I'm going to read you this passage. All right. So you can follow along in your Bible, on your phone if you have it. Genesis chapter 15, 7 through 18. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And this is God talking to Abraham. And Abraham's in, but he said, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid them half, each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So we have this uh, biblical passage that's talking about something that is very profound. This is very important as we look back and it's important for obviously for Abraham and for his descendants, also for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And this passage in a sense speaks directly to communion. It's powerful. And I think um, I, I, I've done, I've studied this for a long time. And I think sometimes uh, people can lose some of the, what I feel like is the full significance of what's going on here. A couple of things that have really helped me. I have, um, I have a large book uh, by a guy, Bailey is his name. And he's ta- he says, he writes about seeing the Bible through Middle Eastern eyes. In other words, how would a Middle Easterner see some of these things? This is something that's totally foreign to us in so many ways. I mean, you read, they cut animals and right? I mean, PETA would be all over us if we tried to do something like that. And I wouldn't want to do it anyways. And so we need to look at it through their eyes. How would they look at it? How would they understand what's going on here? So let's talk about this because God has this dream of community and people keep ruining it. And so he teaches something here about the nature of his sacrificial love. He chooses Abraham and makes a covenant with him. And this covenant is key to understanding God, and it's key to understanding the cross. They're intricately related. And understand that for them, this was not a passage that they went, huh, what's going on here? They're 
totally understanding what's going on here. People entered in covenants all the time back then, especially uh, king. Kings would enter into a covenant and it was always to get something. It was always to get water rights or trade rights or access to land or something like that. Some sort of financial was always underneath. And it always started with an identification, the identification of the one who goes first and is considered the greater and the identification of the one who goes second and is considered the lesser. This is always the way they did it when they cut a covenant like this. So say there would be a war, right? And Nebuchadnezzar conquers uh, a, a land, say King Hapsep. I'm making things up now. He, he conquers King Hapsep's land and he says, okay, now we're gonna enter into a covenant. Here's what it is. And they would do this. They would cut animals. It would be a trough. We'll show a, a, a artist rendition of that in just a minute. And Nebuchadnezzar would say, I am Nebuchadnezzar, identification, the one who has conquered this land. I promise you, okay, there's always a promise that's connected. I promise you protection and peace, right? And he would walk through. And then the other guy, King Hapsep, he'd walk through and he'd say, I am Hapsep, king of this land. And I promise to give in return for your protection and peace every year, you know, 1,500 shekels of gold, 300 shekels of silver, you know, 800 the, the sacks of grain. And so what they do, they've entered into this agreement. They've entered into, and, and I mean, let's be honest, in a situation like this, this is very much like a protection shakedown going on in big cities. You're saying, look, I'm going to protect you. From who? From me. Because I just conquered you. So, so that I don't come back in and slaughter again. Here's our agreement. And they would make this agreement. They'd enter into a covenant. And so there's identification and there's always promise. Look at verse seven here. And he said to him, I am the Lord, identification, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, this is why I'm qualified to do this, to give you this land to possess. And he begins to make this promise. There's identification and then there's promise. And, and he promises Abraham in a, in, in a number of different ways, but he talks about his heirs and they're going to possess the land. And, you know, as it goes on, we read there will, be, there will be millions of them like the stars of the sky, the sand on the shore. And this is what he does. God says, look, we're making a covenant. What does God get out of this deal? This is the big thing here. I want you to think about this. When King Nebuchadnezzar makes a covenant with King Hapshet, what does he get out of the deal? He gets gold. He gets silver. He gets tribute. What does God get out of this deal he's going to make with Abraham? Essentially, what God gets is someone to bless. See, this is something I think we can lose sight of. When you read about a covenant and you read about this one, it'll always keep saying, I will bless you. I will bless you. And then God says, and I will bless those who bless you. God says, I love to bless my people. Think about this. God is serious about the sheer joy he gets out of the relationship that he has with you. This is serious, serious business, right? To God, he gets sheer joy out of his relationship with you. The Old Testament writers are so overwhelmed with this that they refer to him as the God of the covenant over 280 times in the Old Testament because God has made this covenant. And here's the deal. They do not say, for, a, for a, a person in that day, they wouldn't say we made a covenant. They would literally say we cut a covenant. Verse 18 says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. 
the Hebrew word there is cut. He cut a covenant. They understood this is what's involved here. Uh, and, and literally, they would cut the animals in two. And they would lay them on either side. And the blood would run down the middle, of, uh, almost like a sloped area. And in, in uh, verses 9 and 10, I'll just read it to you. He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove. And so he enumerates, this is it. And covenants could only, sometimes if it was not a huge covenant, it would be something small. Maybe just one turtle dove or just one pitch. And the larger the covenant, the more that was involved. And so this is the maximum of God saying, this is, the, this is a huge covenant. And what would happen? Well, between two kings, the first king would walk right down the middle, uphill, through the blood, and get the blood of the animals on his feet and on his garments. And this was a covenant walk. And there would be conditions. There would be a statement on what's going on here. And the king walks through. And what are they saying? They're saying, may what happened to these animals be my fate if I do not honor my covenant with you. May what happened to these animals be my fate if they do not honor, if I do not honor the covenant I've made with you. And there's blood on me to show. I understand this is blood. I understand what's at stake here. I understand how serious this is. In Jeremiah 34, there's a story. The children of Israel have, they've gotten them. Jeremiah's been, God's been dealing with them and Jeremiah's been talking to them. And, they, and so to try to earn favor with God, they, they make a covenant. And what do they do? They cut a covenant. And they release all their slaves because God has said, what you, I hate that. You're doing that. I hate that. And so they said, okay, this is how serious we are. They cut a covenant. They walk through the blood. They release their slaves. And then shortly thereafter, they turn around and re-enslaved them by force. And God said to them, the men who violated my covenant, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk through the pieces. He says, I hate what they're doing to these people. Therefore, the blood of the covenant is on them. The blood they walk through is their fate because of what they've done. And, and God hates that they did that, that they abused a covenant. And it was not a covenant with him. It was a covenant with, with their slaves. And God says, you've abused them. You've done this wrong. <clears throat> you will pay. I will make sure you pay for that. And so people uh, realized what was, God was doing. And he did it. He brought destruction on the land. And this is what they would call a covenant walk. They cut a covenant and blood gets shed. You know, it's, it's a tiny reflect. We have tiny reflections of this in our day. Did you, did you, I mean, maybe I grew up weird, which there's an incredibly good chance that's true. Um, but did you ever say when you were a little kid, I promise, cross my heart, hope to die? You ever say that? You ever think about, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't think about what you're saying. <laughs> you know, I promise, cross my heart, hope to die. And then remember the next part? Stick a needle in my eye. Who thought of that one, right? Who thought of that one? That's great. Let's have our little kids saying this to each other. Good night. Have a good night's sleep, you know. But what, what is that doing? It says, I'm serious about this. Trying to express the seriousness of it. And so on that day, God says to Abram, we're going to cut a covenant. 
Now start to think about that. If I cut a covenant with God, who's most likely to break it? Right? Like not most likely, like in the next five minutes. Right? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. Okay? And the writer's trying to express something here. Abraham's got this dreadfulness that is just filling him. And, and in some way, he's fallen asleep or God has put him to sleep. And I, I, this is my interpretation, but I think it was to keep him from running. Because Abraham understands what's at stake here. Abraham knows God Almighty is going to walk through this and say, you may do to me what has happened to these animals if I break this covenant. Okay, that'll never happen. Then I'm going to walk through this. You may do to me what would have happened to these animals if I break this covenant. That's going to happen soon. Why would I want to enter into this? Is, this is a death covenant. He doesn't have a chance here. He's, there's this terror that's come upon him. If God said, Bob, let's, let's make a covenant. You're going to walk through the blood. I'd be like, no, no, I don't want to do that. But this is, this is interesting because then when the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And this is one of those things where we go, huh? What a smoking fire pot? What's going on here? Well, this, this is it's kind of exciting when you begin to, a fir, smoking fire pot, in some translations, and you might have a translation that calls it a furnace, and that's very accurate. It's a smelting furnace. It's where they would smelt gold, right? And if you know anything about how that works, how would they do it? Especially back then, they would have this pot under this and they'd build this huge fire. It would be under all this heat and they'd dump in gold. And then as the heat rose, the gold would begin to, to melt. And the idea was, not the idea, this is what happens. Everything else, all the, what they would call dross, all the impurities in the gold rise to the top because gold is so heavy. It forces everything up. And so the impurities would rise to the top and they'd take a thing, a little skimmer, and they'd skim the dross off to get it purer and purer. And they'd heat it more and more would come up and they'd skim it off. How do they know when it's pure enough? When they could see their face accurately reflected in the pool of liquid gold, All right? Our God is a purifying furnace. And that's what's depicted here. He goes through, he walks through, and it lists two things. First, the purifying firmness. God is, in, God is in the business of making his people more and more like Jesus Christ. And that involves refining, and refining is not always fun. The question is, are you becoming more and more like Jesus? It's a lifelong process, and we understand that it's difficult, and, and it takes time, but that's the point. We go through difficulties at times it's because God is, try, is bringing purity into our lives. They may not necessarily be caused by him, but he uses them. He refines us to grow us, to shape us, to be more like Jesus. And the second image is a flaming torch. And it's interesting in the Hebrew because it says a torch that is a flame. But a torch is a flame. And what it is, is that idea of the double word is an emphasis on brightness of it. 
It's a great light. It's the middle of the night and this bright light. Ghost passes through the animals, reminding them, I don't know, maybe of the pillar of fire, reminding them that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And I, and I, almost, I wonder, and I don't know this for sure, almost looking forward to the fact that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. So what happens here? Because when these two kings, when two kings would walk through, they're making a promise to each other. But what happened here? Only God went through twice. The flaming furnace and the great light went through. So it's like God is saying as he walks through, you may do to me what has happened to these animals if I break this covenant. And then God walks through in the lesser side. You may do to me what has happened to these animals if you break the covenant. God's saying, if you break it, I will pay the blood price. If you break the covenant, Abraham, I'm going to pay the blood price. This is amazing. Think about it. At that moment, and I mean, I know that in a sense, at that moment, you could say Jesus' fate was sealed. He's the Lamb of God. He pays the blood price. God in Genesis 15 is saying, my son will pay for your sin. My son will do it. You won't do it, Abraham. Abraham never walked through there. He didn't walk through. He didn't get blood on his feet. He didn't have the, 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 uh, the blood price placed upon him. God did it. He went through. If you break it, I will pay. If the covenant between man and God gets broken, it is not honored. If it's not honored, there is a price that will have to be paid. Who will pay it? Blood will have to be shed. I can imagine right then Abraham's relief, Abraham's joy. I have a covenant that's guaranteed by God, and he will pay if I screw it up. Think of what do we see? We see that again over and over in the New Testament. What does Paul say? For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are feeling and living under condemnation now, you're, if you are a follower of Christ, you're missing it totally. If you are not a follower of Christ, I would invite you to become one because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have entered into a covenant where Jesus is our covenant bearer. Jesus is the one who dies for us. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. And maybe you're in a difficult time right now. God is saying, I can redeem this difficult time. I can bring good out of this difficult time. I will walk with you through this difficult time. I know how it feels. And maybe things are good right now. And I think God would be saying to you, I've gifted you with this. Remember me in the good times because they do not always last. Don't forget me when life is good. Trust me with your faithfulness because it will yield great things. Just as I did with Abraham, I will do with you. So we have this covenant and we live under the blessing of it through the death of Jesus Christ because of what he did for us. 
And then what happens? And what's interesting is you see, we look at what happened with Abraham. Uh, as Genesis continues, God brings him the son that he had promised him. God brings him to a place called Beersheba. And he says, this land is gonna be yours. It's gonna be, and, and if you remember what we just read, he said, your, your children, children's children, however far down, they're gonna spend 400 years in a foreign land. We know that's Egypt. We know that's, and I'm gonna bring them back. And they're gonna get this land because I promised it to you. I will honor that promise. So what does Abraham do? Abraham follows up with an action that shows, I trust you, God. I believe you. I believe that you will do this. He's at Beersheba. What does it say? Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. All right. Uh, it's known at uh, tamarisk trees, known also as the salt cedar. You may have heard that. Here's a here's a picture of one. They flourish. They can flourish in the desert. They they're they're very drought resistant. They need to be watered some. Humans need to help take care of them. But there's something that's very interesting about a tamarisk tree that makes it uniquely. Uh, uniquely good to have in a desert situation. And here's what it is. If you can see from that picture, it has little needles. Its leaves are almost like little needles and, and it secretes salt out onto those needles. And during the night, when it's dark and there's a little bit, even in the desert, there's a little moisture in the air, what happens? The salt attracts moisture and the leaf absorbs the moisture. And some of it goes into the uh, keeping the tree alive, but the next day as the sun comes up and heats them up, it starts releasing slowly the moisture. So that, and I was looking up uh, some of this, they would say, oftentimes under a tamarisk tree, it is 20 degrees cooler than it is outside, of, just out in the sun, 20 degrees cooler. So these trees were highly sought after. They were great for giving you respite from the heat of the day when you lived in a desert, when you lived in an arid and dry land, when you lived in a hot place. But here's the thing. The tamarisk tree is one of the slowest growing trees. It takes hundreds of years for them to reach their full height. Abraham planted some trees that he would never enjoy. But his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, his, his, his descendants coming out, of, coming out of the land of Egypt through the Exodus, coming into this new land. And Abraham says, I planted trees for them, God, because I trust you're gonna bring them here. I trust you're gonna bring them here to the well at Beersheba, which is still, you can still go see the well at Beersheba actually. But Abraham, what, did, what was that? It was an act of faith. He said, I believe you. And if my descendants are going to be here, I'm going to plant this tree and others that will bring them shade on the hot days, bring them cooling because they won't have time. You know, if they plant them, it'll be too long for them to enjoy. So I'm doing this. Why? Because I believe you. Because I believe you. When we come to the Lord's table, and I say this sometimes, you know, it, it's one thing to say you believe in God. It's a whole nother thing to say you believe God. And this is what Abraham's saying. This is what God is challenging us. Do you really believe me? When I say I'll take care of you, when I say I'll walk with you, when I say that I love you, when I say that I'm there for you, even in the hardest of times, do you believe me? And what happens? 
when we believe, it changes the way we live. We live differently. If I believe my identity is totally wrapped up in Jesus Christ, he gives me my identity. Then when people criticize me, when people make fun of me, when people look down on me, when people mock me, whatever it may be, um, it, it doesn't bother me. Why? Because they don't shape my identity. Circumstances don't shape my identity. I'm safe in him. Now, just in case you get it in your head, we'll see how much Bob really believes that. Let's, let's mock him and make fun of him. I can struggle with it still. Don't put me to the test. But here's the thing. I, what I've seen is that when I get it right, when it begins to sink in, it changes the way I live. It changes the way I live. If I begin to understand and I believe these things. So what happens? Abraham believes God and it changes the way he thinks. Suddenly he's thinking hundreds of years in the future for the sake of his descendants that will come along because he believed God. As we go to the Lord's table in just a minute, we are going to express our belief in God. And this is what's been happening. We, we can look all the way back to here. We're remembering Jesus Christ died for us. We're proclaiming who I am because of what he's done. And the third one, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, we're examining. We stop, and this is a time to stop and take stock and think about my life and think about your life and what's going on and why you're doing what you're doing. And is there a, you know, for me, a lot of times saying, God, show me if there's something. Show me if there's something. Bring it to my, uh, bring it to my mind. David said, Lord, show me if there's any wicked way in me. And God did. He does. All right? So I'm going to pray. And then the people who will be serving are going to come up. And I'm going to speak just a moment more about uh, the uh, scriptural passage that, that deals with this. And then we'll take communion. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this covenant that we reap the blessings just like, just like Abraham did. We reap the blessings of an unbreakable love, unbreakable covenant. So, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for this very reason, to take, to take the punishment that we deserved. And, Lord, we can never even begin to pay back what you've done for us. And so, in your free grace and your mercy, we offer up our praises and our thanks and our blessings to you. And, Lord, we have this joy that we can have knowing that this is settled, settled for eternity. Thank you, God, for that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.